I ask you to just keep your Bibles open to John chapter 1. If you are already there, just keep it open on your phone or in your physical copies of the Bible. And if you find it helpful to follow a sermon outline usually when you listen to a talk, uh, there is one in the e-bulletin. Now, once you are ready, could you please join me in prayer? Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Please help us now to hear and obey what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I can see on all our faces that uh, this Lunar New Year we've all been feasting, right? So can you count how many uh, restaurants have you gone to, how many buffet meals you've had? Just do a quick count. Okay, now share with one another. Just kidding, no need to. But I'm, I'm sure that all of us have had lots of feasting right, the, over the past week or so. And this year, my wife and I were both tasked to order buffet, right, to cater for a meal for both sides of our family. Now, how do we decide, how do we decide which restaurant to go to or which caterer to engage? Who would you trust to provide a reliable testimony? Well, some people will turn to online food bloggers or reviewers for recommendations, right? So whether it's Miss Maureen Ao, uh, who posts as Miss Tam Jia or Greedy, or Dr. Leslie Tay, because he has a doctor in his name, so it's reliable, right? And he posts on I eat, I shoot, I post, and many, many other out there. But others like myself take a more direct approach, right? We, we read Google review or Burper review, to see what customers who have actually tried the food think about it. See, you and I decide if a food or eatery is worth going to, whether it's good, through others' testimonials. Otherwise, of course, you can also just go and pay and, and see for yourselves, right? Now, how about the Lord Jesus? How do people know whether he is good? Well, it is also primarily through our testimonials, the testimonial of other people. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 51, records three testimonials about the Lord. First, John the Baptist's testimonial is that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Second, Andrew testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. And third, Philip testifies that Jesus was the one who was foretold in the Jewish scriptures. Let's listen to them one by one. The first one, testimonial number one, is by John. In verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. Let's read this together. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? See, at this point, John is in Bethany across the Jordan. If you refer to verse 28, that's his location. And John the Baptist was now subjected to a round of probing by an official delegation that was sent by the Jewish leaders all the way from the capital of Jerusalem. They sent this delegation to John to question him. Now, if someone comes to you and this person is dressed in a doctor's gown and he comes knocking on your door and he tries to dispense unsolicited medical advice to you and prescribes medication to you, surely you'd be suspicious, right? You would ask this person for the proper documentation to prove it. Well, in the same way, Nestle once got into hot soup in the 1970s 
because they got their sales representatives to dress up as nurses and hand out free milk powder samples to mums with newborns. And this created a false impression that their product was endorsed by health professionals when it really wasn't. Well, since John has been getting popular through this ministry of baptizing people and calling them to repent, the religious establishment in Jerusalem is feeling suspicious. They felt that it was necessary to investigate to see what John was doing and who he really is. And so these priests and Levites, they are the experts in ritual cleansing. They have been tasked to find out who John is, or at least who John thought that he was. So responding to their probing, their loaded question, who are you? John, in verse 20, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So that's the first thing that he's not. The word Christ is in the Greek, or it is translating the word Messiah in Hebrew or Aramaic. This Christ is the long-expected anointed one, the king who would come at the end time to deliver God's people. But John firmly and emphatically denies this identity for himself. He's not claiming to be the Christ as the religious leaders thought. Pressing him further, in verse 21, they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Now, who are Elijah and the prophet? These two were two end-time figures that the Jews were widely expecting to return or to come before God himself comes for his people. So John denies that he's the prophet Elijah, who, if you remember in 2 Kings, was taken up to heaven by God in a whirlwind. But God also said in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which you see on the screen, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Because Elijah didn't die and God promised that he will come, so some Jews were expecting this historical prophet, Elijah, to return from heaven. However, John denies that he's that historical prophet. In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, the Lord will later honor John with these words, saying that John was the Elijah who is to come. But clearly, John doesn't hold such a high regard for himself. How about the prophet? The prophet refers to the prophet like Moses, whom God said he will raise up at the end times to be his mouthpiece to his people. And that's found in Deuteronomy 18. But John also denies that he is this prophet because really the Lord Jesus, who's the, the one greater than Moses, is this prophet. So John has denied that he's the Christ, he's denied that he's Elijah, he's denied that he's the prophet. But still, that doesn't answer their first question. And so they repeated it in verse 22. Shall we read these verses together? So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So very clearly here is what the prophet Isaiah said. And John is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, 
where God himself pronounces comfort to his people. So he says in 40 verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people. Because their exile has come to an end, and God himself is coming back to his people as his people return from exile. His glory is going to be revealed for all to see. Each year, just before Lunar New Year, most Asian families would do spring cleaning, right? It's our annual routine to get our homes ready for guests to visit because the rest of the year no one comes, so it's okay. Just keep it messy, yeah? But Chinese New Year, we always get everything ready. Well, I remember that back in school, and uh, we, we used to have to do spring cleaning in the classrooms, and even national service as well, right? When the camps have to be cleaned up. And when that happens, we know that some VIP is coming. Maybe the inspector right, is coming to inspect. And nowadays, whenever NPARCS plants new plants along the road, or LTA lays a, a new layer of bitumen, we know that some minister is probably coming to visit. Right? So Isaiah was meant to be God's herald to announce the coming of God himself. He was supposed to fill up the potholes and to level all the, flatten all the bumps to make the uneven ground level and to make the rough places into a plain, even as God arrives on the scene. So Isaiah prepares the way for the Lord, that is Yahweh. But now John says that he's the Isaiahic voice by his preparing the way for the Lord, Jesus Christ. Now this is a staggering claim that John is making that Jesus equals Yahweh, right? the God that is recorded in the Old Testament. And so because of this, the delegation asked him in verse 25, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sender, I am not worthy to untie. See, why is this thing about baptism? Uh, if you go through the whole Old Testament, you realize that baptism or baptizing people with water uh, was never mentioned. But at some point in history, it was introduced as, the, as a way for proselytes to undergo ritual cleansing. So proselytes are converts to Judaism. They are Gentiles. So it's usually administered to Gentiles. Although some minor Jewish sects, they actually practice it as well. So perhaps the Jewish leaders were suspicious because they thought that perhaps only the Christ or Elijah or the prophets would have the, the right, the authority to demand baptism from the Jews. So how does John respond to this? You may know some people who think that everything is about themselves, right? So if you don't give them the attention they think they deserve, they will get angry because they feel insecure. Now, we may think that John would feel insecure, John would feel angry, but he continues to insist that he is not some VIP. He continues to draw the attention to the true VIP. So John says that he can only baptize with water, but the one who comes after him is mightier than him, his superior. And Matthew would record John as saying that Christ we are baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this alludes to passages in the Old Testament like Ezekiel 36 or Joel 2 or Malachi 3. His water baptism 
the John was baptizing people with water, that only points to the true cleansing work that Jesus Christ alone can do by the spirits of holiness and by God's refining fire. And that is why John doesn't see himself as worthy even to untie Jesus' sender or to even hold his sender. Now, John's testimony for Jesus continues on. Right? In verse 29, we read, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Now let me ask you, what is your mission in life? If I ask you to write down your mission statement in one line, what would that be? Perhaps for some of you, it may be to get into the right school, right? For me, it's too late. I've already finished my education. It could be to succeed in your chosen profession, to attain recognition in a particular spot or field, or influence positive change in society. Or perhaps your life mission is more humble, is to get married and to have, a children, uh, to have children and to have a family. It could be to retire eventually in a landed home. Well, John sees his life mission as serving to reveal Christ, to reveal who Jesus is to Israel. And Jesus is revealed by him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. That is the same message that John would declare to his disciples later on in verse 36. And to, to call Jesus Lamb of God is to point forward to Jesus' future sacrificial work on the cross, to atone for our sin and to appease God's wrath. Now, the lamb erases the sin. Notice the sin is singular. The sin not just of Israel, but of the world. And this sin is when the world turned away in rebellion from God. We turn in rebellion against our Creator. And now that is quite a worthy life mission, isn't it? the one that John has just announced. John lived a short life. Right? He died at a, a relatively young age of around 30, precisely because of this message of repentance for forgiveness of sins through Christ that he was pronouncing. But he was a short candle that burned radiantly for the Lord and has eternal effects. So you and I may not be required to wear camel hair or eat locust and honey like John did, but may the Lord also help us to live the way that John did, however long or short a life he may grant us, that we might witness for Christ wherever God places us, and may that also bear eternal results for him. John continues to witness or test, give a testimonial to Jesus in verse 32. John bore witness, and read this together. I saw the spirits descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the spirits descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have sinned and have borne witness 
that this is the Son of God. It seems as if John, he didn't know, or at least he wasn't certain, that his own cousin Jesus was the Son of God until he personally saw and heard it from God. What did he see? First, he saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus as he was being baptized by John in the river Jordan. At the same time, in tandem with that, he heard, he heard God tell him that the one on whom the Spirit descend and remain is the Son of God, is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John's knowledge about Jesus came about through supernatural revelation by God himself. And now John bears witness to Jesus as the Son of God. So you and I have heard John's testimony that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Now we shall turn to testimony number two by Andrew. In verse 35, the next day again, and that makes this the third day since the narrative began in verse 19, this third day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This first two disciples, why did they so readily follow the Lord when he caught them? He didn't even call him, right? He, he didn't even call them. They just left everything behind and followed Jesus. Why was that? Well, it was because of their rabbi John's testimonial to Jesus who Jesus was and what he came to do. They trusted John's testimonial because they had been with him all this while and they had found John to be trustworthy. See, friends, the manner in which we live and we speak in front of others can impact our witness for the Lord, whether be it positively or negatively. And now as John bears witness for Jesus, he will start to lose disciples. He would start to lose this first two and then many others to Jesus. But John would count all these losses as gains because he was, they were turning away from him, not anywhere else, but to follow the Lord, the Lamb of God. Later in chapter 3, as John learns of Jesus' rising popularity, even as his own was waning, he rejoices and says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Such was the single-minded focus of John, to shine the limelight on Jesus without drawing attention to himself. May you and I also bear witness to make disciples not of ourselves, but of the Lord Jesus. Verse 38, as the two followed, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now this is a simple and yet profound exchange between Jesus and the two disciples of John. At this point, they were still disciples of John. And they began as seekers who were appointed to Jesus by John. But by the end of that day, they had a personal encounter with Jesus and they become his disciples. All it took was for them to accept Jesus' invitation, come and see. 
Now, I think that John's account of how the Lord caught his first disciples doesn't contradict, but rather it complements and completes the synoptic accounts. So you know that in the other Gospels, the Lord caught the first two pairs of disciples, two pairs of brothers, Andrew and Peter, James and John. And he caught them when they were fishing by the Sea of Galilee to leave their homes and their jobs as fishermen to become fishers of men. Well, here John was giving us his personal, intimate account of how these events really unfolded. John tells us in verse 40, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. See, if you compare this with the Synoptic Gospels, for example, you just refer to Matthew 4, Jesus first caught Andrew and Peter to follow him while they were fishing. And then he calls James and John the sons of Zebedee. But as John reveals here, it is actually Andrew who first followed the Lord. And then he goes home to find his brother Simon, Simon Peter, and bring him to, to Jesus. See, in his great excitement as a new follower of Jesus, Andrew had this burning desire for his own brother to encounter Jesus just as he did. In the words of Don Carson, Andrew thus became the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend, brother to brother. See, the interesting thing here is that John, the gospel writer, he doesn't tell us about the other disciple, right? He doesn't tell us the one apart from Andrew who followed Jesus. Who was this disciple and what did he do next? See, the Greek for verse 41 may well imply that first Andrew found his own brother Peter and told him about Jesus. And then the other disciple, the one that was unnamed, did the same with his brother. Now, the synoptic accounts told us that James and John were among the first four to follow Jesus. Right? So who is this disciple? I don't know if any of you read the book Fight Club or you watched the 1999 film adaptation. I'm not recommending the film, by the way. But in, in the book and in the film, the narrator... Uh, the narrator, eventually, you follow him narrating the story, eventually you've discovered that the narrator is the protagonist. He remains unnamed throughout the book. Right? So, sorry if you haven't read the book or watched the film, I've given it away. So now you don't have to do it. <laughs> but this unnamed disciple could very well be the writer, John, the apostle himself. Okay? And John, throughout the gospel, he doesn't give his identity away. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. John doesn't call attention to himself throughout the gospel, perhaps like his namesake, John the Baptist, because he was trying to shine the limelight on the true protagonist of the story. He's trying to shine the spotlight squarely on Jesus himself. I think that's definitely a lesson here for us. How do you and I share our testimonies uh, for Jesus? Do you shine the limelight on uh, yourself 
or on Christ, there's a great lesson here for all of us. So what was Andrew's testimonial? It's found in verse 41. He says, We have found the Messiah, or Christ, the Anointed One of God. Andrew and Peter are among the faithful remnants of Israel. They are among those who have been expecting God's King, the Christ, to come and deliver God's people. And Jesus would show his messianic authority here by simply looking at Peter and saying, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And Cephas is an Aramaic name, uh, which John translates for us as Peter in the Greek. Howsoever Jesus may come to know about who Peter was, throughout this gospel, John wants to show us the Lord's divinity by showing his supernatural knowledge about people and events. And so here's one example. And so we have Andrew's testimonial to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. Next, we also have testimonial number three by Philip. And Philip gives this testimonial to his friend Nathanael that Jesus was the one foretold in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 43, and we read this together. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. This next disciple is Philip, and Philip was the first in the Gospel of John to be caught by Jesus himself. Notice all the rest were caught by other people, right? Only Philip was caught by Jesus. And Jesus finds him and calls him to follow him. Philip simply obeys. And more than that, he imitates his master. He became a true disciple by also finding another person, his friend Nathanael. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. See again another uh, testimonial. And here Philip testifies that they have found the one who was foretold by Moses and by the prophets. Moses wrote the law, the prophets wrote the prophets. Right, so together the writings, they make up the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it. And all of this Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Jesus would later tell the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Okay? So Jesus had this divine origin. And yet, Jesus also has human origins as well. He's called Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And it's this fact that stumbles Nathanael. Nathanael was stumbled by the fact that Jesus had come from Nazareth which is a small village of at most a few thousand people. He didn't come from Bethlehem, the city of David. He didn't come from the capital of Jerusalem. And so his question was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This may also hint at a long-time rivalry between his hometown, which is Cana, and this town called Nazareth because they were located very close to each other, six kilometers away. 
Just like if you know of the rivalries between uh, cities, in Scotland, there's Glasgow and Edinburgh, right? In Australia, there's Sydney and Melbourne. And that's why they had to come out with Canberra as the capital. Or this one, which is new to me, Singapore and Selangor. Okay, I'm told that this is only related to soccer, so don't worry. <laughs> we can still go to KL. Well, Philip didn't try to convince Nathaniel how good Nazareth was. He didn't use any theological arguments. He didn't use any flashy techniques. He simply said, come and see. He was imitating the words of the Lord himself in verse 39, come and see. He understood that his role was simply to invite and to leave the convincing and convicting to the Lord. Likewise, those of us who may be shy or introverted, in, in eloquence, we need not worry that we are going to be bad at evangelizing, okay? because we simply have to invite people to come to Jesus and see for themselves. And anyone can do that. So this is a plug for Discovering Christianity, which begins next Sunday. You can do it. You can go out now and invite someone to come and see. And you don't have to worry. Let Jesus himself do the convincing for our family and friends. How did Jesus do the convincing? To overcome Nathanael's skepticism and to make him a believer. We read in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip caught you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. See, again, John shows us Jesus has supernatural knowledge. First, he calls Nathanael an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, this isn't referring to the purity of his Jewish ancestry. Rather, it shows an intimate knowledge of Nathanael, that Jesus knew that he had no duplicity within him. He is not deceitful like his ancestor Jacob, who was a deceiver. But after meeting God, Jacob's name was changed, right? It was changed to Israel. And Nathanael is a true Israelite like that transformed Jacob. And what is more, Jesus also knew that Nathanael was under a fig tree before they met. So this double insight, spiritual and geographical insight, finally convinced Nathanael that Jesus is the son of God and the king of Israel. Both titles are used for the Christ, the Messiah. Finally, in verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus promises Nathanael that he will see greater things than this. And this likely refers to the signs that Jesus will be doing to signpost his identity and his mission. And this many signs will climax in the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection, to reconcile holy God and sinful humanity. And that is perhaps why Jesus would reference Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, 
In this dream, Jacob sees a ladder on earth that goes up to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. But in Jesus' words, this ladder is now replaced by himself, the Son of Man, who opens up the access between heaven and earth. By Christ's, uh, Christ's incarnation, the Word became flesh. God is revealed to humanity, and so is the descending. And by his crucifixion on the cross, humanity is reconciled to God. We have access upward to God. Jacob will later rename this place where God met him Bethel, which means house of God. Jesus Christ, as the Word become flesh, came to dwell with us as the true house of God. This whole section really ties in well with Philip's testimony that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. See, Jesus is the way to the Father, this true ladder. Jesus is God's true dwelling place with us. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who fulfills the Jewish sacrificial system. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, who fulfills God's promise to David of a future royal heir whose kingdom will be established forever. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit to purify us completely for God. And so, in closing, after hearing all these testimonials about Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, you and I must ask ourselves, what are the implications? And the implication is this. What is your testimonial and mine for Jesus? And Jesus has these words to say to us. If you are already seeking for meaning in life, then Jesus asks you, what are you seeking? There's no one who will satisfy like he does. So just come to him. If you are undecided about Jesus, then he welcomes you to explore. Come and you will see. You can pick up a Bible and you can start from John's Gospel. It's a good place to start. You can also join our Discovering Christianity courses. And the next one starts next week. You can also speak to a Christian friend whom you know and trust. And next, if you are still spiritually lost and wandering as a young believer or even as a long-time believer, then Jesus invites you to follow me. You can join a fellowship of believers to meet regularly and embark on discipleship together. If you are in a person in position of influence, of authority over others, like John the Baptist, you can then point others to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't keep pointing people to yourself. Point to Jesus as the star who deserves all our attention. No matter who you are or who I am, you and I can point a family member or a friend to Christ. Like Andrew, you can bring a brother or sister, a, a parent, grandparent, or relative to Christ. Like Philip, we can bring a friend, a close friend to Christ as well. And Christ will know how to convince and convict each one of them because he knows each of us intimately. Just like he knew Peter and Nathanael. He knows our character and everywhere that we've been through in life. If you are outspoken and outgoing by nature, then God can surely use you to befriend someone and to evangelize that person for Christ. But only if you honor Christ as holy in your heart, 
only if you have a good conscience and are prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And please do so with gentleness and respect, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. But even if you are introverted and you are reserved like myself, God can still use us through our quiet and faithful witness. Whether you are articulate or you get tongue-tied and you cannot do anything without a script like me, it is always helpful to use a script, right? to use a gospel presentation so we can share the gospel clearly and accurately. And to help us to do so uh, later on this year, we'll be uh, showing everyone how to use two ways to leave. But you can feel free to pick up two ways to leave, four spiritual laws, any other presentation. Uh, to learn it so that you'd feel more confident to share it with a friend. See, in the end, we, my wife and I found that there is no better way to know whether a caterer or a restaurant suits you than to simply go ahead and taste and see. Taste and see if the food is good. And now that my wife and I have paid the bills, we have eaten the food, we can now share it with others if it's all worth it. Although, uh, of course, I wouldn't actively go and evangelize for the caterer. And if, even if you ask me, you may not trust me, right? But what is true is that now that we have tasted the Lord Jesus, we become his followers and he's our Lord, you and I do have a God-given task as his disciples to go out into the world and to invite others to also come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Shall we pray and ask God to help us in that life mission? Father, we thank you so much that you've allowed us to behold the Lamb of God and he's taken away the sin of the world. Please draw us to come to him for forgiveness daily and then use us to also draw others to come and see him that they may also encounter him and behold your glory through Christ our Lord. Amen.